Hey, good morning. It's good to see those of you who are here in person. For those of you online, thank you for joining us. We, are, we apologize for some te- technical difficulties this morning, but thank you for being on with us. And uh, if you take a moment just to share this, it's one of the easiest ways to invite people to come join us for church this morning. Uh, happy Sunday to everybody. Uh, so we're in, a four, we're in a series I've led us through in the month of July. It's been four weeks, and we've talked about idolatry. I see some first-time people here today. And what we've done the last four weeks is we've been in a series called Failing Gods. And we've just talked about some of those idols in our lives that we're probably aware of. And maybe we've been aware of these for a long time. But those things in life that we often reach for and cling to to provide security and fulfillment. And what happens when those gods come crashing down? Like things that we invest in are things that are no longer going to satisfy, especially eternally satisfy. So here's what's really fun and interesting. Over the last few weeks, people have reached out to me. And they have said things like, Josh, how can I help? Like, how can you help me know what the gods of my life are? Like, what is in my heart that I need to get rid of? And I, I'm happy to come along and try to tell you what all of those are. But I don't think you want me to. But I'm happy to be a, a friend and a companion in the process. But here is my advice to people. If you want to know if there are things that are growing inside of your heart or mind that are not of God that you need to deal with, It's going to take you taking time to be with God where there is reflection and vulnerability. Without it, you may never know. And I want you to take great joy in the process of coming before God, saying, God, okay, can you reveal things to me inside my heart or my mind that don't need to be there any, any longer? And this is not like stepping into a haunted house where you're hoping that someone with a chainsaw doesn't come jumping out of a closet at you, but God receives these moments with great joy that it's a moment where God gets to help shape God's children into the people God wants us to be. A couple of weeks ago, I had an annual physical. I've done this now for 10 years. From the age of 18 to 29, I never went to a doctor. At 29, right before I turned 30, I went to a doctor. I had a physical, and I just said, hey, I am here for one reason. I want to know if I'm ready to live into my 30s. So a couple of weeks ago, I did the same thing. It was my annual physical. I walked in. I said, I am two months away from being 40, which some of you, it's been a long time since you've had a preacher who is in his 40s. You're getting really close. And I walked in and I said, am I ready to be 40? And my doctor, who's become a friend of mine over the last few years, said, what are your goals in your 40s? What do you want to do? And my my simple goals are this. I want to be able to beat my boys in a wrestling match for the next 20 years of their lives. And I want to be able to eat all the bacon, beef jerky, and pork that I can. All right, those, I don't have a lot of goals. They're very simple goals. But part of it, you go in for a physical, and they check, you know, they, they check my heart, and they check blood. And there's those moments where, do you want to know if something's wrong? Because if something's wrong, are you willing to do whatever it takes to maybe try to fix it? Or would you rather just live in the shadows and not know? And the same thing is true with gods and idols that are growing inside of us. Do we really want to know what they are? And if we do, will we take the time to deal with them? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. I want to walk us through Luke chapter 12 today. And uh, uh, I really look forward to how I can help unpack Luke 12 for you. I, I hope to do this in a way that's helpful and practical, that gives you things to reflect on this week in your time with God and conversations you can have with family, friends, and those around you. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. Meanwhile, and it's hard to do that without using the Stephen Colbert voice, but meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, 
so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And let me stop right there and just point out a few things. One is this. There are thousands of people who are surrounding Jesus. No social distancing pressing in on him. And Jesus had just stepped out of a house. And not just any house, he stepped out of a house of a Pharisee. Where in chapter 11, Jesus was in the home of a prominent Pharisee. And let's just say, it didn't go very well. Because Jesus is in the house of the Pharisee, and Jesus begins pointing out all the things that are wrong in the Pharisees' hearts, and that their allegiance wasn't where it needed to be. And Jesus is pointing out, and Jesus is speaking woes. And here's some things that need to change in your life. Chapter 11 ends with the Pharisees. They are set on trying to take out Jesus. They want to catch him in an argument, catch him in something he has said that is wrong. So now Jesus steps out of that house. There are thousands of people who are around Jesus, pressing in on him. And in chapter 1, it says he begins to talking to his disciples so crowds can hear, but Jesus has shifted his focus from talking to Pharisees to the whole crowd, and now he's zeroing in on some of his disciples, and he's about to do a little teaching. Now, in chapter 12, I want you to catch just some of these phrases that some of you need to hear this morning, and here they are. You can see them on the screen right now. Verse 1, be on your guard. Verse 4, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Verse 7, do not be afraid. Verse 15, watch out, be on your guard. Verse 22, do not worry. Verse 29, do not set your heart on those things. Do not worry. Verse 34, do not be afraid. And I want you to look on the screen. If you're here in person, if you're online, you can see these. Jesus wants to speak some of these phrases into your hearts today. For some of you, it may be, do not be afraid. For some of you, it's do not worry. For some of you, it may be, don't set your heart on those things. Don't worry about those things. He's speaking these phrases, and now let's put a little context around it. If you're taking notes, chapter 12, verse 1 through 12, is all about not being afraid. You can write out, do not be afraid. Repeat after me, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In verse 4 and 5, here's what it says. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. Of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is talking about fearing God. Now, this is a context of don't be afraid. Now, Jesus knew there were reasons to be afraid. And Jesus, it's in the context right now where Jesus knows Pharisees are set against him. His face is set to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. There are reasons to be afraid. We're living in a time in 2020 where we're all off a little bit. There are reasons to be afraid. There are reasons to not worry. But Jesus also knows that what fear can do when fear takes hold of our hearts or fear takes hold of our minds is fear can create inside of us unhealthy forms of anxiety. Fear can strip us of creativity. Fear can strangle joy. Fear can grow us into into cowards. Jesus was aware of this. So Jesus is speaking about the fear of death. But in the context, Jesus is also talking about a fear of disapproval. Like, what do you do when you're surrounded by people who do not like you? And too often what happens when we're in a context where we're in a place where people don't like us and you can't get their approval is you're willing to set aside some of your principles and values. 
And Jesus is speaking to his disciples in a context where you're living in a world and in a culture where everyone's not. It's not just that they're not going to agree with you. They may start pressing on you, pressing into you, wanting to do away with you. Do not let your values and your principles shrink. You stay strong in what they mean. And in this little section here, the first 12 verses of chapter 12 about do not fear, Jesus ends it with this. Look in verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, they will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So consider the consequence of denying the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Consider the consequence. Jesus lifts up the Holy Spirit to a high place in this passage right here. Consider the consequence of denying the Spirit, but then take great comfort. In the fact that the Spirit delights in coming alongside of us. In moments when we are pressed, when we're not really sure what to do or what to say, the Holy Spirit is right there to help guide the way. Do not fear. Now I want you to skip just for a moment to verse 22, and then we're going to come back to the middle part. In verse 22, Jesus says, hey, do not worry. Repeat after me, do not worry. Do not worry. And here's, the, here's how Jesus goes about it. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. And then Jesus is going to talk about the fact that God takes care of the animals and the plants, and God's going to take care of you too. Do not worry. How many of you, just a show of hands, if you're online, maybe you could just post in the comment section right now. How many of you have a love-hate relationship with these commands of do not worry that show up in the Bible? You can quote them, you can recite them, you can pray them over your friends, but then you know this is something that I wish I was better at this, but I'm not. I don't consider my someone, me someone who, who worries much. Maybe I should worry more than I do about things in life. There are times where I have allowed worry to lead me to do some ridiculous things. A few years ago, I was speaking in Russellville, Arkansas on a Wednesday. I left early afternoon. I got to Russellville. I ate a meal with some leaders at a church, spoke at the church, got in my car, and started to drive back to Memphis. So I'm in my car around 8.30, knowing I'm going to be in the car for a while. I call Casey, who I knew had probably just got home from church with our two. They were super young at that point. So I call Casey to see how everything was going. She didn't answer her phone. I was fine the first time. Ten minutes later, I call. She didn't answer her phone. 20 minutes later, she didn't answer her phone. Well, now, not only do I start to worry, I start to play out scenarios in my head of all the things that could have happened. This is the time Casey got a flat tire. Maybe someone broke into her house. I didn't know what. So, after about 45 minutes, I decided I had nothing else to do but to call the Memphis police to go to my house. So, I did. And they said, sir, we can't do that unless you file a missing person report. So I said, I got off the phone with him. I called Patrick Parson, an elder in this church who was a Memphis police officer at the time. I said, dude, you got to help. Something's wrong with my wife. So Patrick gets in the car with Chauncey to drive to my house. But Patrick calls some of his police friends to go to, our, to my house. And they ended up beating Patrick there. Now, here's what happened that night. Casey got home from church and Stacy Hinkle went over to her house. And her and Stacy are just hanging out. The boys are asleep. And Casey's phone died. Because when Casey's phone gets down to 1%, Casey thinks, well, you know, sometime over the next three, six hours, maybe I should plug my phone in. For me, my phone gets at 80%, and I'm like, I need to plug this thing in right now. Like, this thing could die. So her phone died. 
So now imagine if you're Casey and you hear a knock on the door and you look out the peephole and there's a Memphis police officer. Now some of you, maybe you've had a situation like this where they were bringing bad news. Usually that's what happens. So Casey looked at Stacy and said, they're here to tell me Josh has been in a wreck. I don't know what's happened. I just need you to be here for me tonight. And Casey opened the door and the policeman said, ma'am, your husband's trying to get in touch with you on your cell phone. <laughs> that's, that was it. So you can imagine what our conversations are like over the next few days. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who at some point in my life has allowed worry to lead you to do some really crazy things. Now, I don't struggle with worry. I don't feel like I struggle with it much. Maybe some of you do. And Jesus here, verse, chapter 12, verse 22, do not worry. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. God's going to provide for you. And this whole section about do not worry, it ends in this way in verse 31. Listen to this. But seek first his kingdom. This is how you combat not worrying. Seek first his kingdom. Trust in God. Trust in God's kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. And then it's like this real pastoral word of comfort. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then Jesus says this. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And this is huge right here, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So chapter 12 begins with Jesus teaching on don't fear. And it ends with Jesus talking about do not worry. And then right in the middle, Jesus tells a parable. And it's a parable that holds us all together. Because we're living in a season right now. We're living in a year where there are reasons to be afraid. And there are reasons for you to worry. And then Jesus tells this parable that holds it all together. And the parable begins in verse 13. And here's how it starts. Someone in the crowd. So after Jesus had just been teaching about not being afraid. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So somewhere in this crowd of thousands of people, there's this man who's a little upset that his inheritance hasn't gone the way he thought it should go. And he decides that this is the perfect moment for him to try to get someone to help him out. So Jesus has just taught about not being afraid. And now this guy sees Jesus as someone who could be a fair referee right here, a fair umpire. Like Jesus knows what to do in this moment. And if you're Jesus or you're a disciple or you're someone else in the crowd, you're probably looking at this guy thinking like, Where did that even come from? Jesus hadn't been saying anything about an inheritance. Where did it come from? A couple of weeks ago, I sat down with my boys. Every once in a while, I try to do this. I come home from work. I got a nugget of wisdom, and I think they need to hear it. I sat them down. I was like, guys, look. I'm in this series right now about idolatry. I know you're soaking in every word when I preach. But here's the deal, guys. In life, God doesn't care if you have stuff. But God does care if stuff has you. So I'm just trying to teach him a little, little lesson about possessions and wealth and, and where you find your happiness. And, and that was it. Just a couple of minutes. Like, God doesn't care if you have stuff. God does care if stuff has us. And I was like, guys, do you get it? Do you understand? And they look at me and, and then they st- said stuff like, yeah, Dad, we, we, we get it. But Dad, did you know that the heart of a shrimp is actually in the shrimp's head, not the shrimp's body? And did you know that elephant is the only animal that can't jump? And I thought to myself, like, did you hear anything I just said? Like, where's this, where's this coming from? Like, I, 
It's great facts. I'll use it in a sermon one day, but uh, where's it coming from? And here's Jesus. He's trying to teach his disciples about what do they do when people in life don't agree with you and people want to take you out and not being afraid and not worrying. And this guy's like, Jesus, there's this inheritance. And here's how Jesus responds to this guy. Verse 14. Jesus replied to the man, man who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you. And then Jesus said to them, so he says that to the man, and now he looks back at the crowd. He says to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So sometimes I joke when I'm with some of my preacher friends, pastor friends. Sometimes we talk about things like, guys, what are you preaching on this next year? What's on the horizon? And sometimes we'll talk about the subjects people in our churches or around us would love for us to preach about. And people want, a lot of times they want to hear preachers talk about a prayer life, a relationship with God, or maybe social issues or whatever they are. And then usually when I'm with preacher friends, we say, what is the one thing like nobody ever wants us to preach on? And usually it's greed and money. Preachers very rarely have people come to them and say, can you preach just a little more on greed? Can you preach just a little more on materialism? Yet next to the kingdom of God, there's not a subject Jesus talks about more than greed and materialism and possessions. That we make sure it's in its rightful place. Right? Tim Keller says this about greed in his book, Counterfeit God. He said, for Jesus, greed is not only love of money, but excessive anxiety about it. Which isn't just for those who have a lot of it. It's probably just as much for those who don't have it, but they want it. The rest of the Bible talks about greed. In fact, there are a couple of places where Paul talks about greed, and he connects it to idolatry. In Ephesians 5, verse 5, it says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Ernest Becker was, uh, lived in the 20th century. He was a cultural anthropologist. And reflecting on the growing values of the Western culture, he said this. He wrote that our culture... And the American culture would replace God with sex and romance. He wrote this over 70 years ago. And in some ways, it's true. Frederick, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher, a cultural critic. Nietzsche was a man who hated Christianity. But he was also fascinated. And he wrote a lot about what happens in a culture when they press God and move God, remove God from... from uh, a rightful place in culture. So even though he hated Christianity, he did write some on faith. And Nietzsche wrote that the absence of God growing in the Western world would replace God with money. And he said this, what once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money. So here's how the parable goes, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says this, and he, said, he told them this in a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And I love the way Jesus starts out the parable. He starts out the parable by saying, okay, this could be a hardworking man, but a lot of times a harvest is based on luck. And a hardworking 
man or woman working a harvest has no control over the rain that falls and, and other things that happen. So Jesus starts out almost by saying, hey, okay, I'm about to tell you a story about a man, but I want you to know. This, there, he, he lived in a time, existing time, that yielded an abundant harvest. Verse 17, he thought to himself, literally, it's he is debating in his mind with himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up, on, laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Your soul will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You have prepared for yourself. Verse 21 says this, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that down, rich toward God. Because I want you to reflect this week, what does this mean for your life? What does it mean for you to be rich toward God? What are all the obstacles that get in the way of you being rich toward God? This man was rich because he had great crops, but he was a fool because he thought that the crops would bring security and fulfillment for the rest of his life. Now, here's the thing about this parable. It's a parable. So maybe it was based on a true story, and, and there are facts of this story that still play out in our culture today. But when you look at the story, a lot of the things that we hold up in high regard for people in, in the 21st century, this man embodied all of them. Like, he didn't do a lot of things wrong. He's not a cheater. He didn't bribe people. He didn't take advantage of folks. For what we know in this story, he didn't, he didn't work his employees overtime or he didn't disrespect his employees. He was a planner. He was fairly conservative in how he went about life. He seems to be a hard worker. He even seems to have a relationship with God. Like there's a conversation with God that happens in this. He does so many things that seem to be the things we hold up in high regard today. But at the end of the parable, he doesn't have any friends. Three different times in the parable, he talks to himself. He doesn't even have anybody else to talk to. There's no one to leave his stuff to. So he's lonely, no friends, no community. Because in the parable, there had been some idolatry that had grown in his life. And when idols take hold of our lives, whether it's money or any other kind of addiction or emotion, what happens is when idolatry sets in, we trust the idol, we love the idol, we obey the idol. We trust it, we love it, we obey it. And Jesus ends this whole little section right here. Right in between, Jesus is teaching on don't be afraid. And Jesus is teaching on not worry is this little section of take seriously what it means for you to be rich toward God. To be rich toward God. If you want to combat fear and you want to combat worry in your life, the way you do it is with greater trust in God and it's also with a generous spirit. You trust in God. You make sure you're generous with what you have. And the gospel of Luke 
for someone to commit their lives to Jesus. It meant you were declaring faith in Jesus and in the gospel of Luke. For you to declare faith in Jesus also meant that you were going to release your tight grip on all of your possessions. Anything that may hold a place in your heart that is only set for God. And that you learn to be generous with what you have. Happens in the life of Zacchaeus. It just plays out throughout the gospel of Luke and Acts. You trust in God. You get generous with your stuff. And it's not that Luke or Acts or that they are pushing for some society where everybody gets an equal slice of the pie. It's for passionate, devout followers of Jesus. This is the life you live. Greater trust in God. And we refuse to let wealth or possessions be what drives us in our lives. Casey and I got married a little over 18 years ago. Our first year of marriage, we got married after our junior year of college. We were little babies. So our the first year of marriage, we were both full-time students and we were part-time employees. I was working at a church part-time, making $6.50 an hour. Casey was working on campus at the university where we attended, and she was working a part-time job, minimum wage. Our first year of marriage, we made $11,000 combined. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Water was included. We paid $275 a month. There were times in that little one-bedroom apartment, the window units would go out, the stove and the oven would go out. Our landlord, it was not much of a priority for him to fix some of these things. We did not have a washer or dryer, so Casey and I would spend a few hours a week in a laundromat putting stuff in the washer. And if you've ever had to do clothes in a laundromat, you've got to keep cycles going in the dryer for about an hour or two hours. At the end of our first year of marriage, we bought a washer for $25 from a friend. So we had a washer, but we didn't have a dryer. So we could wash clothes, but we couldn't dry clothes. But early on in our marriage, we made a commitment to each other. The 10% giving a tithe to both the church and just to the kingdom, to kingdom efforts happening in the world. The 10% was not going to be something that we would gradually work toward. And it was never going to be the ceiling for us. It was going to be the minimum. This is where we start. So even on $11,000, our commitment was we give to the local church and we give to kingdom efforts. And we made a commitment early in our marriage that we wanted that to grow over time. So within about a decade of being married, we were able to give over 20% of, of what we make, which has, we've still been able to hold true to. And there are moments when I look back and I think to myself, what could we have done if we hadn't made such a commitment to generosity? How much faster we could have paid off student loans or the, how we could have saved up for a down payment on a house or some of the other things that maybe we could have done. But we had this commitment early on. We want the discipline of generosity to exist in our marriage and our family. That we know all we have, it's not ours to keep. This, this is of God. This is of God. So what does the commitment to simplicity look like in your life? I preached a sermon about nine or ten years ago in which in that sermon I made a statement. I was talking about simplicity. And I remember I said that you may have a God in your life if you go home and you have more than like 20 pairs of shoes in your closet. I don't know if there's ever been a sermon I've preached in my history of Sycamore View that more people, especially women, were upset with me. I thought I was going to lose my job. And I remember one woman from church, I think she's here today, she said, she came to me the next week, she said, Josh, I went home after that sermon, I counted how many shoes I had in my closet, I had a hundred pairs of shoes. 
She said, so I gave away 76 of them this week. She said, so I still have 24, but at least it's a start for me. What does it mean for us to be rich toward God? And I encourage you to take time reflecting on in prayer with God of just what does that mean for your heart and your mind? And if you take the time to do that, just like Luke chapter 12, what does it mean for your generosity? What does it mean for finances? Where do we place our trust? Who do we place our trust in? So I want to invite us. Will you close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's have a moment of prayer. And if you're in person or you're watching online, I encourage you just to go on our website. If there's anything we can do for you, a prayer we could pray. We already experienced a baptism earlier this morning. If there's someone who wants to commit their life to Jesus in baptism, you can fill out that form and we would love to follow up with you. But I want to ask you right now for those in person and online, just based on what Jesus teaches, the words of Jesus in Luke 12, what will you do differently in your life this week? What will you do differently? I want you to take seriously in prayer, maybe conversations with people. What do you worry about? What are the fears in your life that may be out of control? And God, for our fears, our worries, our greed, we surrender to you today in the name of Jesus that we will seek first the kingdom of God above all things. In your name we pray. Amen.